Hello and welcome to Season 2 of the StoryFest podcast. StoryFest is a biennial celebration of the art of storytelling held here on Murramurang Country in the Milton Mollymook, Ulladulla region on the beautiful New South Wales south coast. The episode you're about to listen to was recorded in June at StoryFest 2021. You can learn more about StoryFest at our website, storyfest.org.au, where you can also subscribe to our newsletter. Every month we feature some terrific book recommendations, author interviews and fabulous book giveaways. As a bonus, subscribers get first dibs on special offers and early bird access to tickets for all of our events. We'd love to see you at future festivals. Before we begin, we'd like to thank the Ulladulla High School Didgeridoo Group for providing the wonderful musical intro to this podcast. There can be bad language and adult concepts in this podcast, so if there are children around, pop your earbuds in. Now grab a cuppa or put on your walking shoes and enjoy this episode from StoryFest 2021. Ladies and gentlemen, distinguished guests, disreputable guests, and most importantly, readers. I'm David Hunt, and I'm an Australian history and children's picture book writer. Uh, I'm also your MC for the evening. Marcus Suzak needs no introduction, but it's my job to give him one. Uh, Marcus is the international best-selling author of six novels, including The Book Thief, The Messenger, and Bridge of Clay. Tonight, Marcus will be giving us the inaugural Gary Evans Memorial Address on the books that change us. And the books that have uh, changed Marcus the most are David Hunt's Gert and True Gert, available at the Festival Bookstore and for starting tonight, and, uh, and Gert Nation. He's very much looking forward to Gert Nation uh, to be released in November this year. Shameless plug. Um, please welcome StoryFest patron, Marcus Zuzak. Yeah, true, Gert. It was all right. That was the best book I've read in the last 10 years. Uh, such a thrill to be here. And, uh, and it is just really nice. Well, it's always nice when you get an introduction where they get your name right. I used, to, I used to speak in high schools for a living, and there's nothing like 300 year nine boys who want to kill you sitting in front of you. And you get introduced like this, a sort of... I wasn't going to say this, by the way, but it just occurred to me. Uh, this, is, uh, this is Martin, Martin Zuzak, and uh, I haven't read any of his books, but I might want to after I've heard him speak. Uh, Martin, and then you get up and speak, but nothing still beats, and forgive me if you've heard me tell this very short story. It's like my security blanket. Like, you go out in public as a writer, you don't see anyone, you don't hear anyone, and then you go out and you, you almost have to cling to something early on uh, to, to make you comfortable. So I'm so appreciative to all of you for being here because the first talk I ever had to give or a reading from one of my books was from my very first book in 1999 and uh, it was over in Margaret River and nothing against Margaret River, it's a great place, great people and uh, of course that's what everyone said to me when I went to do the, the reading from my book there, everyone said this is a great community, uh, you know, they, they love the arts, they love books, they love reading, it's going to be a great night, you're speaking at the library at 6pm, it'd be great. And of course, I went there and no one turned up. And the uh, story gets better. Uh, no one turned up. And uh, the best part of the story was that the librarian 
still made me read from my book. <laughs> just, just to her. And so, like, when that's the beginning of your career, like, it's awesome. You, you just go. At first, you're thinking this is not great, and uh, but now it's given me such a good story, and I love it. I kind of love it when everyone feels a bit sorry for me at first, and then you get hit with the sledgehammer. And she still made me read, and whoever that woman is out there over in Western Australia, I can't thank her enough because uh, it's given me the perfect way to sort of get over the the first minute talk jitters. So, uh, so I'm so happy to be here. I'm so honoured to be giving the Gary Evans address and, uh, and I know, you know, and people who knew him and, and especially to Penny and Michelle, thank you. Uh, and I have to say this and you, he, because I think you would appreciate it. And, and I don't claim to, know, to have known Gary better than anyone else because he knew everybody and he talked to everybody and so wherever he is now, he'd be just looking there, looking here going, Marcus, don't screw this up. <laughs> don't do a shit job, all right? And uh, because that's just the kind of guy he was. He all, I know when I talked to him, he just always made me laugh. So thank you so much for allowing me to do this. Like I said, especially, especially you, Michelle and, and Penny. And uh, so Gary was a guy who just loved books. Some, a lot of you would know he loved selling a book and he loved talking about books. He was a gloriously passionate bookseller and publisher of local and other Australian authors. And raconteur is one of my favourite words and it applied perfectly to him. I remember going to Brisbane to do a talk once similar to, to this and I thought, this is great, I don't know anyone here. And this voice pops up behind me, Marcus. I'm like, shit, that sounded like Gary. <laughs> and it was, and we had a really great chat. And uh, so it was always really great to see him, but I still think one of his number one achievements, in my mind anyway, was my dad spends a lot of time down here and he would go in to the, to the bookshop and talk to Gary, and Gary put up with it. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm sure he gave as good as he got. And, uh, and, and just that image makes me, makes me really happy. So I am really thrilled to be here, to be doing this. And what I have in my box here are 11 books that have changed me. And, and there are 11 books that have made me top tens are for suckers. You've always got to go one more. It's like I tell my kids, I get my kids to do push-ups before dinner. And I don't let them... I don't, yeah, because I think you're going to be like one day some, something's going to happen. You've got to have at least a little bit of toughness in you, you know. And, and I, I, don't make, I don't let them do 10, I make them do 13. Uh, because it's always been, 13's always been my dad's lucky number, for example. He always called that a Zuzak's dozen. And uh, it's not, if you do 10, like, that's right, everyone does 10. If you do three more, that's three more than everybody else. And maybe that gives you an idea of probably how I've always thought about writing and, uh, and what you have to do to get something done. So I have 11 books here. I'm going to talk a little bit, bit about each of them. I'm going to read from a couple of them and, uh, and hopefully that'll help us get through the night and, uh, and we'll see how we go. First up, I'm going to say that my life changed when I was 14. I was 13 actually, turning 14. And uh, I basically, I, I have a, a brother and two older sisters. Uh, I'm the youngest, you know, and I know everyone says that means you're the spoilt one and all of that. No, it means I'm the one who can really hold a grudge. And uh, <laughs> I remember 
and people know that, like the, the Tim Lloyd and at the, like uh, Oxford Farm, like where where you do horse riding. I remember my sisters and my brother all going horse riding with my dad, and I had to sit in the car with my mum. And I remember thinking, one day I'm going to show all you bastards going out there horse riding, all right? And, and I, I, I pretty much lived with my brother. Um, you know, we shared a bedroom, we fought, we played football in the backyard till we wrecked all my mum's plants. And she came out. The best thing about that is my mum's German, my dad's Austrian, and my mum would come out and swear at us. And because uh, by then she had four kids, and she'd had, she just thought, well, if I can't beat them, I'm just going to join them. And the best thing was that she'd swear with a German accent. And so if we had friends over, they would, they would try to get us to get our mum to swear. <laughs> it sounded really funny. And anyway, when we played football, we wrecked the garden. She came out, swore at us. She said, that's it, no more football. So we started playing cricket. <laughs> then I'll never forget this. I thought I'd done a really good shot. And, you know, the ball went flying over to the left. I just didn't realise this time she was hanging up the washing. The ball hit her in the stomach. The pegs went everywhere, which really that image is always really strong for me, the pegs on the ground. And uh, she swore her head off again and said, no more cricket. So we started playing tennis, <laughs> except we set that up in the house uh, because the backyard was lumpy and uneven, you know. Even on carpet, a tennis ball bounces really well. And... We ended up having boxing matches, and that's what really resonated with us. And we, we just had these, you know, I fought everyone. I fought my brother, I fought his friends. They would knock me down, I would get up. Because when you're the youngest, you're always trying to prove yourself. And I sort of grew up almost with this sort of gang mentality of my brother and I. And I think maybe that's why SC Hinton's The Outsiders changed my life. And, uh, and I know, I, you know, and I know that... Uh, at least one person in the audience here has Stay Gold tattooed on her arm. You don't all have to do that. Uh, you could just be like me and know the, the first line of this book off by heart, which is putting pressure on myself when I stepped out into the bright sunlight from the darkness of the movie house. I had only one, I had only two things on my mind, Paul Newman and a ride home. And I didn't know it when I first read that sentence but that was the beginning of my life changing because I read this book and my big memory of it is, is being in bed with the light on and my brother whinging on the other side of the room telling me to turn the light off and I was just like, fuck you, I'm never turning the light off. I'm reading The Outsiders. And, uh, and I had an important... You know, you know, we were so into football as well and, uh, and I, we had a big, I had a big... And I just didn't care. And this was the first book for me. I mean, I'd, I'd loved books as a kid. And, but this was the book for me where it was like the pages were just turning themselves. And uh, you know that, that great feeling as a reader where the mechanics of it cease to exist. You're there. You're in there. And what, this was probably the first book for me where I thought, I know this is made up. And I kept telling myself, it's made up. Why are you so tense? Why are you so invested in all of this? And I love that thing. And this is the, when people say to me, why are you a writer? I say, it's because I love the idea that you're inside a novel and it's all made up, but you believe it when you're inside it. And that's such a magical thing. And I'm always trying to produce that magic act. 
And so I moved on from the outsiders. And there was a point where I looked at this box of books and I went, there are quite a few American writers in here. And then I thought, oh, do I change it? And I thought, no, just tell the truth. Tell the truth. These are the books that really affected you. And so it's not bad to go from the outsiders straight on to Catcher in the Rye, uh, which is the greatest, you know, I think the greatest example of how voice can just transport you immediately and just grab you by the throat and just throw you careering down the path of the life of this one 16-year-old boy. If you really want to hear about it, and I'm sure some of you know this off by heart, if you really want to hear about it, the first thing you'll probably want to know is where I was born and what my lousy childhood was like and how my parents were occupied and all before they had me and all that David Copperfield kind of crap. But I don't feel like going into it. If you really want to know the truth, that's the first sentence of a book. It's like, yeah, how do you, it's like life's never the same again. He goes on. In the first place, that stuff bores me. And in the second place, my parents would have about two hemorrhages apiece if I told you anything pretty personal about them. They're quite touchy about anything like that, especially my father. They're nice and all. I'm not saying that, but they're also touchy as hell. Besides, I'm not going to tell you my whole goddamn autobiography or anything. I'll just tell you about this madman stuff that happened to me around last Christmas just before I got pretty run down and had to come out here and take it easy. I mean, that's all I told DB about and he's my brother and all. He's in Hollywood. That isn't too far from this crummy place and he comes over and visits me practically every weekend. He's going to drive me home when I go home next month. Sorry, sorry when I go home next month maybe. He just got a Jaguar, one of those little English jobs that can do around 200 miles an hour. It cost him damn near 4,000 bucks. He's got a lot of dough now. He didn't used to. He used to be just a regular writer when he was home. He wrote this terrific book of short stories, The Secret Goldfish, in case you never heard of him. The best one in it was The Secret Goldfish. It was about this little kid who wouldn't let anybody look at his goldfish because he'd, thought, because he'd bought it with his own money. It killed me. Now he's out in Hollywood, DB, being a prostitute. If there's one thing I hate, it's the movies. Don't even mention them to me. Now, the sad thing about me reading that whole thing was that I just wanted to read the part about him saying his brother's a prostitute in Hollywood. <laughs> and just his disdain of the movies. The next book, W.P. Kinsella's Shoeless Joe. Not many people have read the book, but everyone, of course, has seen the movie. And why wouldn't you? I will never, ever hear a bad word about Kevin Costner. And, uh, of course, the film was Field of Dreams. But I remember reading the book. And you know, what you have, you know how we love books for different reasons? For, for me, it's the memory of me reading the book as much as the book itself. I remember I was going to university, I was getting the train and the bus, and sometimes it would take me two hours, and this book was my best friend. I'd be standing at Central Station in Sydney, down in the bottom tunnel, and these words were just floating through me, because W.P. Kinsella just had this knack for doing that thing that every novelist wants to do, which is to show you a world that you don't recognise or that you don't know, and yet you do somehow understand it. There's just so, it, it's showing, showing you the world in a way you've never seen it before, but you recognise. And even his descriptions on the first page... Actually, I'll read the first little bit. 
My father said he saw him years later playing in a 10th-rate commercial league in a textile town in Carolina, wearing shoes and an assumed name. He'd put on 50 pounds and the spring was gone from his step in the outfield, but he could still hit. Oh, how that man could hit. No one has ever been able to hit like Shoeless Joe. Three years ago at dusk on a spring evening when the sky was a robin's egg blue and the wind as soft as a day-old chick, I was sitting on the veranda of my farm home in eastern Iowa when a voice very clearly said to me, if you build it, he will come. And you know, like, I would kill to write a first eight lines like that. And, uh, and it stayed with me forever. And then led on to another great Iowa book, What's Eating Gilbert Grape? So proud of this addition too. Apparently the author hates it because it gives away the ending, the cover, where they burn it. Oh, well, I'm, hopefully I'm not spoiling it. But, you know, anyway, this book, I'm not going to read from it, but this book proved to me and showed me what, you know, many things make great books, but the thing for me that makes great books is great characters. And this, this, this book has great characters in spades. And, uh, and I absolutely love it. So then something pretty irreverent, like something that the thing that changed everything for me is, you know when you read a book and you go, this guy or this, this, uh, this woman doesn't give a shit about the rules. You know, you, you read these novels and you, you, read, you read them, you know, you've read 20 novels and they're all really good and then you read one and you go, this just changed everything. And for me, The Commitments was one of those books. And again, I was in that formative sort of age, I think I was 19. And, uh, and I knew about the film and everything, and then I saw the book in the, in, I think, you know, in a really big bookstore, and I, I just swooped on it, and, uh, and it was quite on page three. These two guys, Outspan and Derek, are talking about the fact that they're, they're forming a band, and they're trying to form a band, and their friend Jimmy walks in, and, uh, and they've decided what they're going to call the band is and, and, exclamation mark, and. That's the name of the band. This is how that conversation goes. It's really short. But you'll see what I'm talking... When I read this, I sort of went, oh, all bets are off now. Jimmy. So you've been seeing any girls since I last seen yous? No way, said Outspan. We've been far too busy for that sort of thing. Isn't that right? Yeah, that's right, said Derek. Putting the finishing touches to your album, said Jimmy. Putting the finishing touches to our name, said Outspan. Ah, oh, what he is called now. And, and, exclamation mark, right? And, said Derek. Jimmy grinned a sneer. Fuck, fuck, exclamation mark, me. <laughs> I bet I know who thought of that. And he's talking about the third member of the band, Ray, who he, and I'm not even going to tell you what he says when, when he says, right, if I'm in charge, because they ask him to be the manager, if I'm in charge, Ray's no longer in the band, and they ask him why. You just have to read the book to hear what he actually says, because even I'm not going to go that far here tonight. But you can pretty much imagine. Sylvia Plath, the bell jar. No, no, like, you, you just can't write evocatively the way she does. Like, you just can't do it. And this is the other thing is, it's such a, such a bittersweet thing when you come across these books, because you go, well, I don't need to write anything. It's all been done, it's all here. It's all in these, 
you know, 160 odd pages. And uh, I do just love the beginning of this book where she, she talks about, I'm just gonna read one little, I was gonna read more, but I, I, I'm, I'm aware of how long you've been sitting down too. New York was bad enough. By nine in the morning, the fake country wet freshness that somehow seeped in overnight evaporated like the tail end of a sweet dream. Mirage grey at the bottom of their granite canyons, the hot streets wavered in the sun, the car tops sizzled and glittered, and the dry, cindery dust blew into my eyes and down my throat. Such a clear vision there. You know, she just wrote with this amazing, amazing vision. And you read that and you go, okay, now I've got to step up. You've really got to step up if I want to try to write. And, uh, and yet, yeah, you've got to step up and you've got to work hard. And then you read a writer and you go, this guy just gets up in the morning, scratches his backside, goes over to his typewriter and punches out genius. And for me, that's Michael Chabon, or Shaban, as they say. And he wrote The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, which I, yeah, it deserves a cheer. He, um, this book was really important to me when I was beginning to write The Book Thief. And, uh, and there's a line in it where he describes a boat, uh, like a big ocean liner coming into New York Harbour. And he says, the Rotterdam came into New York Harbour like a mountain wearing a dinner jacket. <laughs> and that, to me, summed up everything about what you're trying to do as a writer. I'll often talk about writing as, it's like climbing a mountain, but there's the promise of a sand pit at the top. Reminds me, actually, that, and you know the mountain I think of? It is always that first bit of pigeon house. You walk up there, and I remember going up there with my dad once, and we're all whinging and complaining, and he said, you wait till you get to the top, you know. But you've got to get through the first 10 minutes are the hardest. And writing is like that too. Showing up is the hardest part, and you do all this work waiting for the moment where everything parts and you see what you need to see, or you're sitting in the sandpit just playing with the words. And that line from this book, I mean, it's a great book, but that line in it, is what has always stayed with me beyond everything else. So that was while I was starting to write The Book Thief. And, uh, and then what happens is you have all these problems. So that's the other thing about being a writer. Like people think I've got a good imagination. I don't. I just have a lot of problems. And, <laughs> and, I, and I'm not even joking, all right? The, I, I start writing a book, I'm like, oh, I've got all these problems. And your imagination lies in getting around those problems. And, uh, and that's where you, it's like the old cliche that necessity is the mother of invention. And you need little bits of help along the way. And one of the books that really helped me, and you have pride, you know how you have pride in a certain book that you love? And you especially have pride in a book that you love that is, that, is not that author's most famous book. Everyone loves, you know, uh, well, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, but it's actually Wonder Boys is probably my favourite book of Michael Chabon. Okay, so The Autograph Man by Zadie Smith. Yeah, everyone knows White Teeth, but for whatever reason, this is the book of hers that I really love. And again, it felt like a bit of a rule breaker. I mean, the prologue is 41 pages, uh, it, which is sort of unheard of. And, uh, and again, like I won't read from this one, but this was the sort of book that just said to me, to just stop worrying about everything and do it. Because there would just be these moments of great 
I guess I'm just going to call it flowingness in this book where you just think, she's just having fun now. Just have some fun while you're writing. And that's why this one changed me uh, in, in the process of writing The Book Thief. And, and I, again, I remember being in Tasmania when I was finishing that book. Again, it's got a, a place attached to it as well. In the last year or two, one of the books that's been most important to me and this is funny because I wrote to the author of this book to ask her if I was, you know, I was like, are you all right if I talk about it? And she wrote back, and I did it in such a long-winded way. Uh, and she wrote back and she said, I had no idea what you were even talking about in that email. And she said, but yeah, she, she said, I thought you were actually trying to get me to come to the festival, uh, which is pretty funny because she lives in France, you know, so... Uh, and so, of course, uh, I think, you know, and I don't think it needs any real introduction, uh, but, um, but The Yield by Tara June Winch uh, is such an incredible book. And what she does in all of her books, actually, is I always talk about the language. Well, I don't always talk about it, but uh, every now and again I'll say, when I wrote The Book Thief, for example, it was like reaching into my mind and scratching something and pulling that world out, uh, pulling the language of that book out, and so, of course, the book's written in English and it has smatterings of German through it, but it has its own language, uh, how it feels. And I think, you know, this book and all of, all of her, um, Tara June Winch's book have that feeling. It, you feel like you're in, it, you're in the hands of something so unusual and yet perfect. And uh, this was one of those books where sometimes I will make notes and, and, and things like that. And there was a moment where, and here's a quote from it, uh, that, I, that I just put down on a notebook and then tore the pages out. And uh, it says, there are few things worse than memory, yet few things better, he had said. Be careful. And my note underneath that was this. On rereading this line, I can't help but think of what TJW is saying or not saying or leaving space for us to contribute. Be careful. Does that also mean be brave? Writing advice is always that first rule. The first rule is showing up, which feels like the right advice for pretty much everything. And so in that case, I was really, really thinking, are we brave enough to show up to history? And, uh, and I think that's the question uh, that I took out of this book and that provides, you know, hopefully a lifelong answer. And, uh, and so that's why I felt like this was such an important book and, and resonates with uh, what Meredith was talking about earlier about uh, Patricia Ellis's book tomorrow, which I'm looking forward to, to, to that event a lot uh, and so many other events at the festival. So I'm not sure how much longer I've got. I just bumped the microphone. That's going to haunt me. Uh, it's going to haunt me for, for ages. Uh, this one's for my friend. Now, one of my friends came tonight, a guy named Clay, Clay Comba, and uh, he's, one of, he's such a good friend, I still can never say his name. And uh, <laughs> I tried to get him to get this book in his bookshop, um, Bucanese in Kayama, and he was a bit ambivalent, and so I'm just reading from it to piss him off. <laughs> uh, I, but um, he's written a really beautiful book called A Hundred Remarkable Feats of Xander Mays, and uh, definitely go and get that because I think that'll be a life-changing book for, for many people. But I tried to get him, don't clap him, <laughs> he'll get plenty of that, uh, but yeah, no, it is beautiful. And, uh, but this book, 
was the book that really hit me over the last year or so. Tom Jones, with an, Tom with an H. Think of Tom York, the lead singer of Radiohead, how he spells Tom. Tom Jones, this is Night Train. It's like a greatest, a greatest hits of his short stories. And in this, sto this story, Mouses. And similar to how I was getting to a certain point in The Catcher in the Rye reading, uh, similar in here as I read sort of the first page of this, and then I've got one more reading, and then you'll be, you'll be rid of me. Uh, unless I bump into you on the weekend, bail you up and talk to you. Uh, that's the other thing with writers, is we spend so much time alone that you get in public and you can't shut us up. <laughs> This is the beginning of Mouses. It's probably my favourite short story of the last you know, two years. Mouses. Rodents infiltrated my place at the first hard frost of the fall. I had a minor premonition that this would happen, and then, lo, it happened. Lo, just L-O. It's like so great. For a couple of days, it was in the back of my mind in the twilight area where minor worries flourish. No big alarm bell rang because most of the stuff you worry about never comes to pass. But then came the evidence, the irrefutable fact that not only did the said perpetrators, previously unknown to me, claw and chew through a box of wheat thins, they defecated at the scene of the crime, <laughs> leaving sizable pellets behind. Apparently, don't shit where you eat isn't in the rodent code book. <laughs> Hygiene is not a big concern with them. At first, I was in a state of denial. My place is sealed as tight as a drum. How could they get in? Also, I was thinking, I don't need this now. I really do not need this. I was facing problems at work. There were rumours of a cutback at the plant. In spite of my seniority, I've been an engineer for 10 years. I knew I was high on the shit list. I'm a convenient target. Why? because I'm very short in stature, five feet nothing, and I have a slight spinal deformity, a hump. No matter what goes wrong at that hellhole, I get blamed. Anson, the midget, did it. A computer goes down, blueprints get lost, milk sours in the lunchroom refrigerator, the midget did it. So at first I buried my head in the sand. I had woken up late that day, no morning coffee, and my feet had barely hit the floor when I saw the chewed-to-shit wheat thins box. What a sight! It looked as if a wolverine had gone through it. There I was, standing in my pyjamas, in a state of complete disbelief. This was no time to conduct a full-scale pest investigation. I was late for work. We're still getting to my favourite moment. That night in bed, when fears are greatly magnified, not only was I worried about my suck-ass job, I began to think that the intruder might be a big black rat with an appetite for human flesh. <laughs> Jurassic. The wheat thins box looked like it had been blasted by a shotgun, and as I said, the waste pellets were mighty big. For all I knew, there could be a whole pack of vermin running around my place, bearing disease and pestilence. Can you get rabies from proximity? That's what I was thinking. Now, I didn't deliver it properly, but my favourite word in all of that was when he says, just, it's, it's a one-word sentence, Jurassic. And uh, it just, you know, and I, didn't, I got the timing wrong. That's going to haunt me more than the microphone. <laughs> but one, the, okay, and I'm going to finish with one last reading. I hope it entertained you as much as it entertained me. Catch 22, 
I was 16, I was in Mr. Spees's year 11 English class, and uh, he gave us Catch-22. I was 15, and uh, I couldn't possibly get through Catch-22. And uh, I'm so grateful he did, though. And this is for all you English teachers out there and librarians who give us books that we just complain about relentlessly. And then we ask for them for our 21st birthday. And in neat lettering in here from my sister, it just says, happy 21st birthday, Marcus. And, uh, and on page 100 was when, or page 99, actually, was when my mind was blown uh, by this book. This is the classic scene where, where the, one of the, you know, one of the poor guys in, in the platoon, Clevinger, gets hauled in to the higher-ups. And, uh, and it's this, you know, sort of court-martial situation where they're interrogating him, all right, and about what he either said or didn't say to the main character, Yossarian. And uh, I remember just sort of reading the first part of this book, and you know when a book just ignites for you? Uh, that's what happened here, and uh, that feeling is uh, hopefully brought across tonight in the reading of it. Also, quick, very quickly, my favourite story about Catch-22, it's such a masterpiece, that when Joseph Heller would write another book and critics would say, oh, yeah, but it's not as good as Catch-22, you know what he would say? Yeah but no one else has written a better book than Catch-22 either. And, and I love that kind of self-belief. I clearly don't have it myself. Uh, but I love that story about this book. Anyway, here is poor old Clevinger copying it. The colonel beat his fist down upon the table and hurt his hand and became so further enraged with Clevinger that he beat his fist down upon the table even harder and hurt his hand some more. Lieutenant Scheisskopf glared at Clevinger with tight lips, mortified by the poor impression Clevinger was making. In 60 days, you'll be fighting Billy Petrol, the colonel with the big fat moustache roared, and you think it's a big fat joke. I don't think it's a joke, sir, Clevinger replied. Don't interrupt. Yes, sir. And say sir when you do, ordered Major Metcalf. Yes, sir. Weren't you just ordered not to interrupt? Major Metcalf inquired coldly. But I didn't interrupt, sir, Clevinger protested. No, and you didn't say sir either. Add that to the charges against him, Major Metcalf directed the corporal who could take shorthand. Failure to say sir to superior officers when not interrupting them. <laughs> Metcalf, said the colonel. You're a goddamn fool, do you know that? Major Metcalf swallowed with difficulty. Yes, sir. Then keep your goddamn mouth shut. You don't make sense. There were three members of the action board, the bloated colonel with the big fat moustache, Lieutenant Scheisskopf and Major Metcalf, who was trying to develop a steely gaze. As a member of the action board, Lieutenant Scheisskopf was one of the judges who would weigh the merits of the case against Clevinger as presented by the prosecutor. Lieutenant Scheisskopf was also the prosecutor. Clevinger had an officer defending him. The officer defending him was Lieutenant Scheisskopf. It was all very confusing, confusing to Clevinger, and to me, clearly, <laughs> who began vibrating in terror as the colonel surged to his feet like a gigantic belch and threatened to rip his stinking, cowardly body apart limb from limb. One day he had stumbled while marching to class. The next day he was formally charged with breaking ranks while in formation, felonious assault, 
indiscriminate behaviour, mopery, high treason, provoking, being a smart guy, listening to classical music, and so on. In short, they threw the book at him. And there he was, standing in dread before the bloated colonel, who roared once more that in 60 days he would be fighting Billy Petrol and demanded to know how the hell he would like being washed out and skipped to the Solomon Islands to bury bodies. Clevinger replied with courtesy that he would not like it. He was a dope who would rather be a corpse than bury one. The colonel sat down and settled back, calm and cagey, quite suddenly and ingratiatingly polite. What did you mean, he inquired slowly, when you said we couldn't punish you? When, sir? I'm asking the questions, you're answering them. <laughs> yes, sir, I... Did you think we brought you here to ask questions and for me to answer them? No, sir, I... What did we bring you here for? To answer questions. You're goddamn right, roared the colonel. Now suppose you start answering some before I break your goddamn head. Just what the hell did you mean, you bastard, when you said we couldn't punish you? I don't think I ever made that statement, sir. <laughs> Will you speak up, please? I couldn't hear you. Yes, sir, I... Will you speak up, please? He couldn't hear you. Yes, sir, I... Metcalf. Sir, didn't I tell you to keep your stupid mouth shut? <laughs> yes, sir. Then keep your stupid mouth shut when I tell you to keep your stupid mouth shut. Do you understand? Will you speak up, please? I couldn't hear you. Yes, sir, I... Metcalf. Is that your foot I'm stepping on? No, sir, it must be Lieutenant Scheisskopf's foot. It isn't my foot, said Lieutenant Scheisskopf. Then maybe it is my foot after all, said Major Metcalf. Move it! Yes, sir, you'll have to move your foot first, Colonel. It's on top of mine. Are you telling me to move my foot? No, sir. Oh, no, sir. Then move your foot and keep your stupid mouth shut. Will you speak up, please? I still couldn't hear you. Yes, sir, said Clevinger. I said that I didn't say you couldn't punish me. Just what the hell are you talking about? I'm answering your question, sir. What question? <laughs> Just what the hell did you mean, you bastard, when you said we couldn't punish you, said the corporal who could take shorthand, reading from his steno pad. <laughs> All right, said the colonel. Just what the hell did you mean? I didn't say you couldn't punish me, sir. When, said the colonel. <laughs> when what, sir? Now you're asking me questions again. <laughs> I'm sorry, sir. I'm afraid I don't understand your question. When didn't you say we couldn't punish you? Don't you understand my question? No, it'll be over soon, I promise. <laughs> no, sir, I don't understand. You've just told us that. Now suppose you answer my question. But how can I answer it? That's another question you're asking me. <laughs> I'm sorry, sir, but I don't know how to answer it. I never said you couldn't punish me. Now you're telling us when you did say it. I'm asking you to tell us when you didn't say it. <laughs> Clevinger took a deep breath. I always didn't say you couldn't punish me, sir. <laughs> That's much better, Clevinger, even though it is a barefaced lie. <laughs> Last night in the latrine, didn't you whisper that we couldn't punish you to that other dirty son of a bitch we don't like? What's his name? Yossarian, sir, Lieutenant Scheisskopf said. Yes, Yossarian. That's right, Yossarian. Yossarian? Is that his name, Yossarian? What the hell kind of a name is Yossarian? <laughs> Lieutenant Scheitzkopf had the facts at his fingertips. It's Yossarian's name, sir, he explained. <laughs> yes, I suppose it is. Didn't you whisper to Yossarian that we couldn't punish you? Oh, no, sir. I whispered to him that you couldn't find me guilty. 
I may be stupid, interrupted the colonel, but the distinction escapes me. I guess I am pretty stupid because the distinction escapes me. Well, you're a windy son of a bitch, aren't you? Nobody asked you for clarification and you're giving me clarification. I was making a statement, not asking for clarification. You're a windy son of a bitch, aren't you? No, sir. No, sir? Are you calling me a goddamn liar? Oh, no, sir. Then you're a windy son of a bitch, aren't you? No, sir. Are you trying to pick a fight with me? No, sir. I think I'd better stop there. <laughs> In all of that, like I did make notes and I think I've lost them. Uh, what I want to, I think the last thing I'll say is like, uh, firstly about that. I mean, I could just read that all night, obviously. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, but there was one of those moments where all bets were off. It's just like, okay, you can, you can do whatever you want. Do whatever you want. And I urge any of you who are wanting to write out there, just take that moment. You know, you think you're going to do it tomorrow. You think you're going to do it next week. Next week still becomes now at some point. And the last thing I'll say is that when people say to me, why, why do you love books? The first thing I say is, I don't answer that. You can tell because I'm long-winded. Uh, I say, first I'll tell you why I love movies. I love movies because I get to see the characters. But I love books because there's a different magic in books. When I read books, I get to become the characters. And that's what makes me love books. And that's what I wish for you this weekend, that you're going to discover writers and books that make you want to be the characters. And I think to come full circle, I think this is the, the Gary Evans address and uh, I think that's what he'd love about this event and that's what he'd wish all of you too. So thank you so much for having me. Have a great weekend and sorry if I went too long. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Come and find us on our website at storyfest.org.au or follow us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter at Storyfest Inc. And that's Inc. with a C. We'd like to give a huge thank you to Kel Butler from Listen Up Podcasting for her recording and production expertise on this podcast. Mm -hmm.